In the name of the one holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. St. Martin's Chapel right here at St. John's Cathedral tells a story. When facing the altar table from Clarkson Street, one is struck by the white oak sculpture anchoring the space. If you ventured in, prayed, or participated in Holy Communion in that space, it is difficult to miss. Cast in white oak, four angels flank an infant Jesus who is held and elevated by Mary, Mother of God. If you spend enough time with the sculpture, you'll notice that Mary is wearing a stole not unlike the one I'm wearing. She's also donned in a chasuble not unlike the one the Canon Katie is wearing this morning. Emanating from Mary's body are three rays of gold. I couldn't help but consider this depiction of Mary when listening to the portion of scripture we just heard from Hebrews. It is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I have found it helpful when interpreting complex sections of the Bible, and who am I kidding, all of it's complex. To imagine passages that quote a lot from other parts of the Bible as a musical. It's not supposed to be funny, but thank you. Thank you for laughing anyway. It's funny, I, you know, plant a joke, people don't laugh. I plant things that are serious, people laugh. I lost my train of thought. (laughs) So think of the Bible and think of these parts of the Bible as a musical, with the narrator's parts as being more like prose or spoken, and the parts being quoted as song or poetry. As it is in musicals, the prose shifts to poetry when characters so full of emotion simply cannot contain themselves. The Hebrews writer makes a poetic dialogue dance on the tongue of Jesus, who she has singing, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, which is a quote from the Psalms. For the author of Hebrews and many Christians since, the whole sweep of Jesus' life, his announcement of good news to the poor, his healing of the sick, and his public prophetic demonstrations are in a sense a sort of sacrifice, a priestly offering of self, not to satiate a bloodthirsty God but to form a creek of gratitude that builds toward a river of effusive thanksgiving, climaxing on the cross and at the tomb in the events of Holy Week. The sculptor of that wooden piece of art in our chapel picked up on that. For him and others, Mary was the first priest, the very first 
And if she can't say this, no one can. The very first to elevate the very body of Christ and say, this is my body. This is my blood. This is my very flesh. This is my son. It is Mary who breaks out in song, saying, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, who has scattered the proud in their conceit, who has cast down the mighty from their thrones, who has lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty-handed. The tune of Mary's song is not gentle, meek, or mild. The tune of Mary's song is revolutionary transformative, history-altering. It is, in short, a rebel anthem. Mary, like oppressed people before and since, imagined a world turned not upside down, but right side up. A world in which the baby gestating in her womb could be born, could live, and could flourish. But like so many artists before her and since, Mary's genre is an an acquired taste, which is why she first performs it not for a large audience, but for an audience of one, her understanding older cousin, Elizabeth. When Elizabeth hears the tune, the child in her womb, John the Baptist, I'm not going to do a, a test this morning. But, you know, Elizabeth and Mary are related. They're cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus are therefore distant cousins. When she hears the tune, the child in her womb leaps. A 17th century theologian said, this scene reinforces the image of Mary as priest because her greeting of Elizabeth imposed her power on Elizabeth's baby, further sanctifying John, setting him apart for God's purposes, imprinting him with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Mary's priesthood is not passive. Her priesthood pulses with expectation about what our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, calls the Jesus movement, that fledgling early band of followers who caught the vision of all that Jesus did, taught, and embodied. In the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we read of the 11 remaining apostles, some women, the text says, and Mary, mother of Jesus, waiting in an upper room. Unlike the others there on that day, Mary's knowledge of Jesus spanned decades, not just three exciting years of ministry. Mary could recall for that tiny community gathered in that upper room what it was like to be refugees in Egypt with her son Jesus and her spouse Joseph what it was like to chew on food and place it in her son's mouth before his teeth grew how she passionately passed on the stories of her people, of their land, of their God. How she grew up in an occupied territory, subject to the whims of violent Roman soldiers, only to have her son killed by that same violent apparatus, the very apparatus whose demise 
she eagerly awaited and proclaimed. It is because of this intense imperial violence that Mary cultivates what some in the black church would call sanctified imagination. And she passes this on to Jesus. And in the black church tradition, sanctified imagination is the practice of filling in the blanks, of hearing a story on its surface and adding the flourishes and vibrant hues and robust tones it needs to make it human, to make the story compelling. Mary's sanctified imagination, her seeing the world as it is, but being unsatisfied with it as such. Her challenge of the status quo, her wince at the very thought of violence leveled against her people or her son is the sort of imagination Christians are in desperate need of. That ability to make polyphonic, multi-voiced music in the face of hegemony that ability to laugh and practice joy when the odds are not in our favor, of seeking refuge in our own Elizabeths, of causing the dreams of others to leap in utero. Amen.